When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inner Source Healing Podcast, the program about healing from toxic abuse. My name is Deborah Ashway. I am a licensed clinical mental health therapist and also a licensed clinical addictions specialist. But I have also been where you are now and have experienced the devastating effects of toxic abuse. It has been a long journey through the path of healing, but when we finally awaken from the trance that is so easy to fall into around toxic people, life can be absolutely amazing. It's like you can finally breathe and live and experience life in full, vivid, extraordinary color. And I want to help people get there by healing from the dependency, the codependency, the trauma bonding, and the abuse. The healing process brings us through those long-standing false perceptions that held us back from experiencing a more fulfilling and meaningful life. I am so honored today to have Jana Wilson, author of Wise Little One, here with me today. She has dedicated her life to helping survivors of toxic relationships find strength, healing, and transformation. Jana is not only the author of an incredible book, but also a passionate advocate for mental and emotional well-being. Her book, Wise Little One, has touched the lives of many, offering guidance and solace to those who have experienced the devastating effects of toxic relationships. And with a background in psychology and personal growth, Jana Wilson brings a unique perspective to the table, offering valuable wisdom and practical strategies for those seeking healing and personal growth. And thank you, Jana, so much for being here and agreeing to be on my podcast. I am, like I said, in the process of reading your book. I'm obsessed with it. I can't wait to finish it. I'm having a hard time putting it down. And it is so well written. It is literally captivating. And it feels like it's directly speaking to me. And I'm sure that everybody will feel this way. Probably everybody feels this way that reads it. So thank you again. And um, can you just share a brief overview of your book? Yeah, thank you, Deb, for having me here. It's very grateful. Um, yeah, the book it was, you know, a, a one. It, it was in the making for a long time, right? It's like you have an idea, and of course, timing's everything because it just wasn't time. Um, I had to get to the place where I'm at now in my life to really craft this book in a way. And of course, you have to meet yourself in order to write a book you know, this intense about trauma that I had when I was a child um, and adverse childhood experiences. I scored 10 out of 10, you know, there's 10 questions in that. And so I went through a lot and at a young age, I began to have awareness. I was having mystical experiences at the age of 12. I had the first um, really big mystical experience. It came out of trauma. I believe it was like a near death experience, honestly. It was, um, I read a, or I watched a documentary on near-death experiences and someone who had been drowned described a similar experience. And essentially what happened to me is my dad was beating my mom. It was a lot of domestic violence and chaos. And I was praying and asking to be saved from it. I was, you know, very scared when these things would happen. And, and I was pulled out of my body. And what happened after that was really, it was miraculous because I, you know, I, I felt this peace and the peace was so profound that I thought, I remember thinking at 12, if I'm dead, I'm okay with this. Cause it feels good. You know, it feels better than where I was, but I asked, you know, what's happening. And I was told those are not your parents. And this is not your life. And I could see myself wringing my hands, you know, there in front of our shabby trailer. And, and I looked around me and it was like, I was just 
in the cosmos. You know, it was just this beautiful expanded feeling, you know, it was probably like a divine state of consciousness, right? I was fully awakened to the truth that, oh, I'm a human playing a role and there I am and I'm just a child. It's kind of like I got downloaded all of this advanced wisdom in just a second and then boom, I was back in my body. And I believe that awakening is certainly what got me through the rest of my teenage years and got me out of that little provincial town in central Florida. And, um, and, you know, really set me on this path, like woke me up enough to be able to be aware of signs. And so I share with the reader, it's a prescriptive memoir, which is, you know, somewhat unique. You don't really see that prescriptive is the word that's used for nonfiction for like self-help. So I took my memoir and added, you know, these little vignettes about 13, 11 chapters actually have additional teaching. So as the reader's reading it, as you know, you can, you know, refer to what I'm talking about, what I'm experiencing, what's happening, childhood conditioning, my developmental, you know, conditioning, my parents' developmental conditioning. So I really want the reader to see how it happens, right? How we do get conditioned from parents who were conditioned. And unless we wake up and break the cycle, we're just destined to repeat it. Yeah. And it sounds like um, this spiritual awakening played a major role. I mean, maybe the most major role in the healing process. Well, I mean, the ultimate truth, right, is non-duality. But that's what I knew, right? Once I merged back with source, source reminded me, you know, it was like I needed a, a, I needed to be reminded, stay strong. You're there for a purpose. You can get through this. Like it was like all downloaded, not at my 12 year old. I don't think I could, I knew it, you know, intellectually, but my spirit, my soul knew it. Without the near-death experience though, is there a way that you can guide readers or listeners into developing um, more of a spiritual awakening or connection or awareness like you've had? You no, know, I, yeah, I believe it's, it's just intent. You know, when we have the word desire comes from Latin and it means like of God. So for me, it's like there was something placed a seed in my soul that when I came into this incarnation, you know, I believe that we, I contracted with my parents for that experience. There was karmic debt to be paid. Of course, I didn't know that as a child, but I believe if someone has a really sincere desire to have a relationship with spirit, which let's identify what is spirit, you know, we look at the world, as you just said, and, you know, duality, everything has an opposite. So there's form and there's formlessness. There's, you know, local and non-local. Um, there's physical and metaphysical, right? There's all these opposites. Can we develop a relationship with something outside the senses, right? We can't see it, taste it, touch it, hear it, or smell it. But we begin to have this sincere desire. For me, the gift of the trauma was that. I mean, it really, it it made me yearn for that connection to spirit because that's the only thing that brought me other than my grandmother. She was my physical resource in this lifetime to provide me stability and love. And, you know, she was seeing me, hearing me, all the love languages, you know, where mom was mentally ill, dad was an addict, you know, they, they had no awareness for that. In, um, in the book, you kind of, well, you, you explore the name of it. You explore the concept of inner child healing. And can you explain what that means a little bit more and why that's so important in the context of healing from toxic abuse, wise little one or inner child, what that concept means? Yeah. So in, um, I was fairly young when I began to understand about inner child work in my early twenties was through John Bradshaw. I talk about him in the book and, and, uh, you know, I, I felt like my core operating system, I call it my core false belief was I'm bad. 
And so if I, if I operated from, I'm bad, then anything that was good, I pushed it away. Right. I sabotaged it. And if I could relate with a part of me, maybe it wasn't the totality of me, but a part of me that was pure and innocent, that was deserving and lovable, then maybe I could start to identify more of me as that because, you know, the more I identified with my pure and innocence and my goodness, of course, I behaved in that way. <laughs> if I identified with my badness, I, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, I acted in ways to prove it, right? So I, um, I think the inner child is our feeling self. As you know, when we're children, when we're little, all we see through the lens is uh, through the lens of life is through our emotions. We're very emotional beings. And, you know, as a little girl, I, um, you know, I had a lot of emotions. I was, you know, I was made to be a parent at a young age, you know, finding my mom attempting suicide and, you know, lots of things. And so as I got older and I started to understand about inner child work or this concept, I began to relate with myself. And I even, you know, I, I have lots of pictures of myself, but I'll keep them on the back of my phone just to remind me like a screensaver <clears throat> that that little girl, am I being nice to her? Am I pushing her? Am I? So I think it's integral to our healing, our emotional healing, because if we, if we can, I've seen it time and time again in 19 years of doing this work with clients, if I can get them to relate with themselves like a loving parent would to a child, the healing begins. They begin to actually even fall in love with themselves. They actually start to grieve the childhood maybe they didn't get. They don't minimize it anymore. You know, it's interesting, like writing the book, when I went into the studio to read it for Audible, I'm still doing that. It was difficult. So writing the reading the book, I really went to a deeper or maybe a higher level of healing and, you know, like really acknowledging, I think I've been in survival for so long that reading the book, I had to really acknowledge like, wow, you did go through a lot and I'm sorry, I push you so hard all the time to keep proving you're good enough or you're, you know, and so the book's been very healing for me um, now that it's been published and out in the world and people are reading it and I'm getting, you know, a lot of the feedback, I'm able to really acknowledge myself like, wow, I did go through a lot. I think I, I think, you know, you just kind of muscle yourself through it and you do the healing work. I certainly have. I believe that, you know, Deepak says um, memory. Well, he says, use memory, don't allow memory to use you. I love that. And I love the way you conceptualize the um, inner child, because to me, what it feels like is the inner child is more like the soul who hasn't been programmed yet. You talk about your core programming hasn't yeah. been programmed yet with all of the memory, I guess the implicit memory and the programming that goes along with it, like what's dangerous, what's not dangerous, and then how to protect right. yourself where you get kind of caught into that. So if you conceptualize it as a little child, like innocence, I guess that's what comes to mind. Yes. Yeah, I love that. That's just that's turn innocent. Great. And then you begin to cultivate this relationship. It's like she sits next to me, you know, and I talk to her and I I, you know, ask her what she wants to eat, what she would like to do. Like I give her everything that I would need growing up. So, you know, I live by this kind of saying, it's never too late to have a happy childhood, right? <laughs> yeah. We can learn how to give our, our, you know, our inner child, all the love, security, comfort, everything that they need that then maybe they didn't get when they were a child. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself wondering how you would be different today if you hadn't had the child experiences that you had? You know, I don't, I, I, I think I, I think for so long, you know, Deb, I identified that, you know, like a badge of honor that I went through what I went through and, 
and how strong and disciplined and focused and determined I've been throughout my whole life to just keep growing and evolving. So I, 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 I can't remember a time, honestly, maybe like right when I left Plant City and I went away to school and the judgments of the other girls and just feeling again, different and um, like, why, why me? I had shame about my childhood, but I can't, you know, once I read that book, you, when I talk about it, it woke me up so much. And then I found unity and, you know, everything. So I was so young at, you know, my early twenties. I mean, my brain wasn't even fully developed and I was already studying metaphysics and raising a child, you know? So I think um, I was able to shift it. Like this happened for me, not to me. Yeah. And I just haven't been a victim of it. You know, I think my mom was such a victim. I was more committed to not being a victim. So I, would you change how you were treated as a child? If you could do that all over again, would knowing that it would change the who that you are now and everything that you've learned, or would you, re- would you do it again? Yeah. So I was with, you know, I worked with Debbie Ford, the author of dark side of the light chasers. And I was at her house once and it was, it was after a particularly hard intensive that I had went through with her and I needed some support. And what had came up was the shadow of whore. And I was really, you know, I had, you know, I didn't have value for myself. So when I went away to school, I just gave myself away. Right. And I was very promiscuous and I, I didn't have value for myself. And my daughter at the time, she was in college and I was really worried about her because Facebook was brand new and I saw her on there partying and stuff. And I was kind of a helicopter mom, you know, because I didn't want her to experience anything I did. So I was telling Debbie that in the shadow process, I was embracing whore and it was really hard. I couldn't find the gift. I couldn't find any blessing in being molested as a child, sexualized young, you know, raped in college. Like I I just couldn't find any, you know, any gift in that. And she listened and she said, Jana, tell me more about you were a single mom for seven years with Taylor, right? So tell me more about that, you know? So I get excited, you know, I'm telling her, oh yeah, I was all intent on breaking the cycle and raising my daughter the right way. And I lit up and she looked at me and she said, would you change anything if it would if it maybe would have changed her life, you know, like what if she would have got molested or what if, because I was lackadaisical or I wasn't, you know, I was kind of hypervigilant, but, um, and then I realized in that moment, I wouldn't have changed anything, you know? So yeah, it was difficult, but it made me the woman I am today. I think there's no one that I can't work with and really relate at a heart space, you know, that, no one's above or beneath us. And I can really relate with almost every person I've ever worked with. So it really makes me good at what I do because I'm down to earth and relatable. Let's talk about forgiveness because you had a lot of, I mean, hardships and, you know, reasons to not forgive really. And healing often does involve for, I mean, it does involve forgiveness. Not often. It really does. It does. How can, how can people find the strength to forgive those that have caused them so much harm without excusing the abusive behavior while they're still alive? Yeah. So, you know, we have these sayings, right? Forgive and forget. You and I know that we can't do that because then we're destined to repeat it. And one of the people who I admire the most he passed away was Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And you look at him and how he was able to forgive and lead his people through apartheid without destroying the country, right? Because he was so heart-centered and and loving. And so I was always inspired by stories like this. Um, I certainly don't, you know, also the saying, you know, not forgiving's like eating poison and expecting the other person to die. So I, you know, dad, my dad, forgiving my dad, I was really 
it was easy for me to forgive my dad because my mom would always say he's sick. So I grew up with this understanding he was sick. Now she didn't say she was sick and, but people in my family did, right. They all knew. And of course I knew, but she would gaslight me a lot, you know, like she was fine. You know, it was your father that's sick. He's an alcoholic. So dad, I was able to have boundaries with, I think it's important. Sometimes we have to divorce our family, you know, healthy people can't have relationships with unhealthy people. And so when I began to learn boundaries and set boundaries and tell my dad, you can't visit me unless I speak to your sponsor and AA or, you know, so I was really clear with that. Now, my mom was a different story because my mom was just like, just like all of us, right? We're all wabi-sabi. Mom was light and dark. She was, you know, she was, when I was a teenager, Deb, I'm a heart math facilitator and you're, you know what heart math my mom would put us heart to heart and hold us and tell us to breathe in slow and deep. And she would, what she was doing is activating the vagus nerve and then flooding our body with love. And she would just say loving things to me and my brother. She would have me and him do it together. So she was, she had deep wisdom, but she didn't apply it. So I guess it wasn't wisdom. She had knowledge. She she learned a lot. I believe every time she went into a psych ward and had electroconvulsive therapy and came back, her brain was rewired. She was reading Raymond Moody and, you know, Linda Goodman and all kinds of different types of esoteric and different types of teachings and mystical teachings. And so I, you know, could forgive my mom because I believe that our souls definitely contracted it was still difficult. And I don't, I write about it in the epilogue. My mom passed away last year of Alzheimer's. I'm sorry. And she, I think it was a gift for her because she forgot all the bad stuff. She remembered me even to the very end. Um, she might not know my name, but she knew me, you know, and, you know, but I brought her to live with me in Santa Fe with my new husband and Lance and she um, created chaos again. And so here I'm at 53 years old or 52 years old when this happened, still trying to save my mom, still being a caretaker in this codependent toxic relationship. So with my mom, I would forgive, but I wouldn't, I, and I would forget. Like, I just always wanted to push it under the rug and I just kept repeating the same dysfunctional cycle with her. It was like my soul was so connected to her. I just couldn't cut the cord. And, you know, I think self-forgiveness is the most important. You probably agree. Like, I think if, if I can forgive myself for behaving in ways, you know, when I'm wounded and acting from my ego, then I'm definitely more inclined to forgive you when you do the same, right? Right. I agree. I am interested in when you are or what changed or when that changed for you, if ever the caretaker role of your mom and forgiving her, because that would be really hard. There's light and dark. You love her. She's your mom. You're attached to her. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of gaslighting. She did a lot of things that were hurtful and not protective as well as the role reversal. Right. So have you ever been able to fully forgive that was, what was that like? Was there anger involved? What did, what was, you know, yeah. what did you go through with that? So she came here to live, you know, we sold her home in Florida and we planned to build her a guest house and just have, she was in the beginning stages. We didn't know if it was dementia, what it was. We didn't know. So she began to, you know, act out when she came here and acting out, meaning she would go to a, you know, senior center and she would accuse them of stealing her money, or then she would accuse us of abusing her. And then she called the state of New Mexico and had us investigated for elder abuse. And, and here I am, you know, my husband's a physician at the hospital here. I'm running a healing center here. I'm like, you know, mortified. I've given my whole life to want to help my mom and help others. And now I'm getting accused of hurting. So it woke me up big time. It was like, oh my gosh, my professional career, my name, everything is at stake because I keep being a caretaker. 
And, um, you know, it was not healthy for little Jana to bring her mother. Even though my mother was old, I needed to find something else for her not to live with me. Because when you've been that abused by someone, I still have, you know, I still would have flashbacks. I would go to bed afraid that what if she got a knife or, you know, because she was pretty violent, as you know, and not to give any spoiler alerts, but, you know, the, I talk about it in the book, but anyway, so it was when the state of the new, of New Mexico got involved that I really woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I can't fix her. You know, little Jana had to come to terms. She couldn't fix her mommy. And and it was, it was like, you know, she, she was drowning and she was taking me down with her and, um, she attacked me and I called 911 and they came and they took her and we got her in a geriatric psych ward and she ended up getting released to my brother who ended up caring for her. And then he got her into a, a, a home for, you know, he went through a lot too once he, he had her. But they both sort of attacked me at the end. You know, he believed that I was abusing her and, you know, it was, it was really chaotic. I didn't really go into that in the book because it's, you know, it's water on the bridge, but it's what woke me up and it took that long. And so how did it look? Two and a half years. I didn't know where she was. I, they wouldn't speak to me. Um, I knew nothing. And I, Mother's Day one year, I looked at my husband and I said, I just need to be left alone. And I gave little Jana permission and about five hours I sobbed on and off all day, like five hours that day. And I raged and I punched the pillows and I screamed in them and I cried and I, I just finally fell into, I have to grieve my mother's death. She's dead to me. And so is my brother. And then, and then healing came, then lightness came and then I didn't think about her much anymore. And, you know, when she would cross my mind, I would just send prayers of, you know, love and blessings. And then one day I was working with a client and I just got a really clear, I call it like a download. You're supposed to reach out to your brother and check on your mom. And I was like, oh, okay. I hadn't had that. And I did. He immediately responded. And we, within a week, I flew to Texas and I saw mom and she was, you know, just so happy to see me. And, and I got a good year with her. I went back and forth about four or five times. You, you talk about, um, you woke up and you woke up to, it sounds like some of the programming that you had to take care of her, that you had to, and you kind of learned that. I mean, you would have had to learn that from childhood. How would you survive? You know, otherwise she clearly needed to be taken care of. And when you say you woke up, does that, is that what it feels like? You woke up to the programming? To the programming. Yeah. Right. Right. And you know how, because I was, you know, I believe that we're here in earth school to learn lessons. So I kept asking this question, what is the lesson? What is the lesson? How did I get here? My intent is to help my mom. And now I've got the state and, you know, investigating me. And I've never been in trouble with the law and it, it just, all of it just had me spinning. So I always go to what is the lesson? What is the lesson? And I was going through emails like 15 year, years ago, emails. I just, you know, searched for her name and my brother's name. And I started reading about how I've been caretaking for them for so long. And then there'd be an email. I'm not doing this anymore. You y'all need to figure it out. I am not going to come in and sweep in, whether it's with money or whatever and help you. You know, I just, and then it was like the pro I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, that everything I teach, right. was all coming through me to myself. And I was saying, wow, here I've been caretaking the ultimate, I just, my brother was a drug addict. My mom, you know, was a hermit, you know, she quit living and I just wanted them to have a good life. And my brother and I now have reconciled and he actually, he was morbidly obese. He's lost like a hundred pounds. He's doing fantastic. Now I keep the relationship a little estranged, you know, it's, it's has to be because I've learned my lessons and, um, 
but yeah, it's good though. It feels good. I'm on the other side, you know, Mm -hmm. you had to break through a lot of barriers, a lot of that programming. When you're saying I'm done, I cannot take care of you anymore. I'm sure you were fighting every single opposing, I don't protective barrier there going, you can't, you have to, what was that like? What was it telling you? You're a bad person. If you don't, was there a lot of guilt, you know, bring us through that a little bit. Yeah. So even one day she was here, I I was standing right here in my office and she looked at me and she goes, you're a bad daughter. And, you know, so she was trying to use anything because she knew I was very committed to being good. You know, my core false belief is bad. So that meant, you know, anytime I felt anything, somebody was upset with me. Oh, it's my fault. I'm wrong. I did something bad. That's classic caretaker. Right. And of course, who do we attract takers? Those that say, yeah, you hurt my feelings. You did this to me. You're responsible for my feelings. And, um, you know, I just kept that cycle going forever. My husband and I call ourselves recovering caretakers. Now we're caregivers and we give care to ourselves first. And we'll only give care to another if we have enough to give. It's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to our own happiness. And that's not selfish, it's self-responsible, right? Because I'm not responsible over someone else's happiness. So during that time, yeah, I was fighting all that old programming of, you know, in memories of my mom and the enmeshment and all of the, you know, good times and who she really was. She was deep and interesting. We would read books together and discuss it, you know, as an adult. But once her mind started going, it was, she wasn't there anymore. She was having a lot of mini strokes and, uh, you know, it was, it was frightening and I was in denial. I just was like, snap out of it, mom, stop. Like, why are you acting like that? And like, I just, it was too much. I couldn't, I couldn't manage it, you know? And so I just did my old operating, which is fix it, put her in nice clothes, get her hair done, take her to get her nails done. Like, you know, dress her up and she'll be okay. Like feed her organic food and she's going to be okay. Like, you know, like I just like stop, you know, just behave and listen to me. And I became, of course, the parent definitely as, you know, as she was older, but yeah, it was difficult. And finally, um, that when she attacked me, the attack was, I had taken her card away from her because she, um, was, you know, getting the helpers that we hired to take her to get money and she didn't need money and she was hiding it in my house. And so when the police came to get her belongings with her, she went and remembered every place in my house. She hid the money. She told the state I stole. Wow. So her mind, you know, I didn't know, like, that sounds very, you know, it sounded like she was being very vindictive. She was very clear on what she was doing, very manipulative. Um, so I think she would kind of come in and out. I'm not sure what was going on, but I knew I needed to get her out of the house. And so it was either, and I was newly married. I had only been married six months. I was like, oh God, my husband's going to be like, <laughs> he was wonderful, but he was like, oh, okay. I definitely married into so it was, and he has like no baggage from his past, hardly any. So difficult. So difficult. It's like the two extremes, you know, you have her ability to connect and be soulful yeah. and mindful. And then this extreme manipulation and who knows it. And now it's intertwined with, I, I guess, dementia. And so now it's hard to even pull that apart. What do you that's feel? why I would go back and forth? You got it exactly. I would be like, but that's my mom. You know, we've had deep moments. Like we were in Mexico and Buddy Graves. I talk about him a lot in the book. He took me to Costa Rica, see Elvis. Like he was a family friend. She and I are in Mexico and on a, a vacation. And, you know, this was like in maybe 2007 or so, 2008. And we are talking about him and we both are very tapped in and we're, and we're talking about, you know, again, it was a mixed bag. He was, he was in love with mom. So there were some difficulties and things there, but he had passed away. So we were both very like that night as we're sitting there talking about him, we go back home to the States and we find out he had passed away 
So she was, she would meditate, she would garden, she was very like grounded. My daughter would only say wonderful things about her because she was the best grandma to my daughter, right? So she made up what she did with me, with my my daughter, so. What do you feel like, you talked about, the, you know, your, our contract when we come into this existence, we're supposed mm-hmm. to learn stuff so that I guess we can grow and evolve emotionally, spiritually. What do you feel like that is for you given the parents that you were given and given the extremities of the situation, especially how you talk about your mom with these extreme opposites and then having to break down some of the programming? Well, first, as I shared in the book, you know, once I read Dr. Brian Weiss's book, Many Lives, Many Masters, I, you know, we know the truth because it sets us free. And when I read that book, it just, there, everything inside of me knew it was truth for me, right? That led me on a path to becoming trained with him and really accepting reincarnation as a belief system. And then of course, Deepak Chopra and learning all the Vedas and, you know, that's Eastern philosophy, right? So for, I, I, it empowered me to look at myself like, wow, if I would have chose those parents, it must mean that I'm a pretty strong soul here for a purpose, or I wouldn't have chose so much so early. And, um, and to wake up, you know, and so I think the gift, you know, in identifying that I am a soul, I'm not just this human and this personality and these roles I play, that I am an eternal, immortal soul coming in, you know, to correct like karma, a good way to think about it. And the way I was taught is it's like an accounting system. So we have debits and credits. And so my soul came in clearly with some debits and chose to correct those and pay them back early. Now, my mom and my relationship through re- through regression therapy, I um, at one point we were sisters and my our father was raping us, raping me. And I I took her before it happened to her as she came of age and ran with her and at my deathbed she was very angry with me because I took her from her family she said she never knew her father or her brothers because I had taken her so you know it's complicated right it's a a mystery we don't really know what happens after we die you know but my mom and I definitely had a very complicated relationship very um a lot of of me taking responsibility for her being the, you know, parentified and being the parent. I was just thinking as you were talking, it sounds like a protective role and you, you met it again in this, you know, in this situation, you're trying to protect her. You're You're trying to save her. I, I come across this a lot where it feels like we, we tend to do that, especially in childhood role reversal. Yeah. And then it's like, well, but why? Why do we have to not protect people? You know, what? why do we need to learn this? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, when I was a little girl and I'd, I would see her depressed so much and slicing her wrist. And I would always say, when I grow up, I'm going to take care of you. Like, where did that come from? I mean, I clearly saw she couldn't take care of herself. I had to get strong and organized. And, and of course that my adaptation to that trauma was that I became very controlling, you know, and I've had to learn to really let go and, you know, move through all of that survival mechanism of wanting to control everything and make it perfect. So cleaning things, you know, I talk about that as a child, trying to create order out of there's no order disorder. Yeah. I think, um, you know, as children, when we, uh, Nicola Preya, the holistic psychologist, she talks about the glass child. You know, it's the child that, like I was, that had to grow up and take care of mom and dad. I mean, there's a path out, right? We can be a cycle breaker. We can be the disruptor and say, you know, this doesn't work. I'm ready to to heal and and shift that. And I've certainly done that for my daughter 
Taylor. She's 35. She's pregnant with our second grandchild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my grandson's seven. I just had grandparents stay with him this week. And I get to see all the work I've done through their life and how emotionally intelligent her and her husband are and perfect. Absolutely not, you know, but especially in a first trimester. (laughs) So, and the other thing that comes to mind is um, the importance of boundaries. I think that's emphasized too in your book. What um, obviously boundaries are extremely important, but what are some practical tips that you can offer to other people who have gone through toxic abuse to establish and maintain healthy boundaries? Yeah, so boundaries are something we set um, for ourselves, right? Because we're helpless over others. So if I'm in relationship with someone and they are being verbally abusive, let's say, and I want to set a boundary, then what a boundary would not be would be me saying, you can't speak to me that way because they can, they can do whatever they want. I'm helpless over them. What I can say is when you speak to me this way, here's what I will do. I will hang up the phone. I will take space. I, you know, I'll renegotiate this relationship. And if need be, if you continue to do this, I'll walk away from it. Now I'll only be able to take those actions if I am not verbally abusing myself, right? Because in the mirror of relationship, if I'm in a a relationship with someone who's abusive, the first place I would work with a client is to say, let's examine your relationships and, and with self and see where are they mirroring it? You know, what are you, you know, being disparaging to yourself? Are you putting yourself down all the time? Are you, because that's a match right? To be with somebody who's also going to do that to you. We teach people how to treat us. So boundaries and just a really practical sense, I believe is, you know, just really getting clean with how am I treating myself? How am I loving myself? Do I respect myself? And then if, if the answer is yes, anyone who comes along who doesn't match that frequency, it, you're very aware of it and you let them know one, one first time, you know, I observed when you spoke to me like that, what was your intent? Our intent is our most important motivating, you know, so we always want to ask someone, what is your intent before we create a whole story and run off with it and make up, you know, meanings about what they were. Oh, they don't respect me or they think I'm an idiot or they think I'm incompetent. No, maybe that none of that's happening. That's just a story we create that creates our own suffering. So when we're setting a boundary, it's number one, you know, what was your intent getting clear? Okay, well, just so you know, in the future, like that didn't feel good for me and I don't deserve that. So please, you know, communicate, blah, 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 better or, you know, and then if they do it again, remember, I had this conversation with you before and now you're doing it again. So you're on notice, like the relationship can't continue. It's altitude, direction and speed altitude, spiritually speaking, I can't be in a relationship with people who are very religious that tell me I'm going to die and go to hell. Like that just doesn't, you know, so altitude, spiritually speaking, doesn't mean I'm, I'm better than them. It just means my conscious awareness of what I, how I perceive the world is different. It's at a different altitude. So there's not good communication, right? There's nothing to talk about. And then direction, I can't, you know, I'm not typically in relationship with anyone who is very materialistic or vapid or right. I'm go deep or go home. Let's talk about, you know, let's, where are you headed in life? What's your goals? What's your aspirations? How are you going to make the world a better place? And then third speed, you know, we get in relationships and sometimes our speed, we're really, you know, I love that meme that says, um, if I have, if you haven't seen me in a year, allow me to reintroduce myself. My growth, growth game is strong, <laughs> right? Like you're always up leveling. So altitude, direction, and speed. And when those aren't there, that's usually the relationships you're having to put a lot of boundaries because the other people aren't speaking the same language. They're not at, operating at the same frequency. And family members are often those, you know, that's why I had to pretty much divorce all my family. You were talking about intention and it is good to clarify intention. 
what what do you do or how do you advise people when they do try genuinely to get clarification on the other's intention but they're not honest with it they they gaslight or they hide their intention well that's when we trust our wise little one right that's our feeling self it's saying oh, i don't believe them you know right. so we say okay well, that's good to know your intent. We agree with our adversary, right? So we don't resist. We move into a high emotional intelligence is leaning into discomfort. So we may have awareness that they are gaslighting us and stuff. And in that awareness, we would know we're not going to argue that point with them, right? We see who we're dealing with. And if it happens again, then we say, remember this happened before. And I asked you your intent and you said, you know, but now it's, it's a pattern. You begin to see patterns and you just pull your energy back. Sometimes I don't believe it has to be a big conversation. It's more just a, you know, removing yourself from those kind of toxic dynamics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so since we're running out of time, um, I am really enjoying this conversation though, but can you offer any messages of hope and encouragement to um, any listeners who might be struggling with the aftermath of toxic abuse and that are looking for a path towards healing. They might be in the early stages of that. Well, I, um, you know, our nervous system is running everything, obviously our autonomic nervous system. And so to keep it balanced and, and not you know, keep ourselves in chronic stress through thought alone. If you're in a relationship and coming out of a toxic relationship, you've been in chronic stress, right? And the body doesn't know the difference between it's about to get mauled by a bear or you're just, you know, repeating some past experience you had where someone spoke disrespectfully to you or was mean to you or cheated on you or, you know, so it's, it's, really learning. I think the most important thing, what I created in the emotional healing system foundation before we do anything is you must learn to meditate, you must learn how to sit and be and master the thought because most people believe that meditation is quieting the mind. That is a result of it eventually. However, when you're a new meditator, you won't stick with the practice because you're not you don't know that that's a myth, really. It's a myth that you're supposed to quiet the mind. Actually, what all you're supposed to do is to become aware of when you're lost in past or future thinking. You're not present. So if someone just as simple as they could download an app, although I encourage um, not using guided meditation, the way I was taught as a meditation teacher is silence and stillness. So just learning every morning, like spiritual hygiene, you wouldn't think to not brush your teeth. So sit, sit for, you know, sit, view it as time with yourself. It's self-love, self-care, connection to spirit and a mantra, a great mantra to use, which will help compete with the thinking is so hum, which means I am. So just thinking so hum. And anytime you catch your mind lost, you take a deep breath, you come back to so hum. I think for so many years, I fought meditation, you know, because it's it's not easy, let's be honest, to sit in stillness when you're used to go, 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 go. But then once you start to unwind your nervous system and you start to flood your body with, you know, all the good feeling chemicals, right? Serotonin, dopamine, all the, you know, yummy feelings, the vagus nerve fires, you start having this sense of well-being and you crave that silence and stillness. So I, until you can get into homeostasis, into, you know, a, a, a non-stressed state, you can't learn, you can't really have a new experience that's going to really modify, right, your behavior, mm -hmm. your thinking. So mm -hmm. I think meditation is, and anyone can do it. You know, you don't need special equipment. You just need a, a sincere desire to want to feel peace. It's not easy, right? It's yeah. So you've got to have consistency. So my teacher would always say RPM, rise, pee, meditate. You get up, you empty your bladder, you do it before you do anything. And then that way you create this habit of just cleansing your internal world. So now when you go out in the world, you're much more 
aware and conscious so you're less reactive you have a, a baseline perfect it almost feels like that same choice of tuning into higher self wiser self or tuning into programming programming that you know fight flight or freeze tends to come up with that too I would love to go on and on and maybe I can have you back for more. But as we wrap up this very enlightening conversation with Jana Wilson, author of Wise Little One, um, I am reminded of the profound healing potential that can be unlocked. And through the magic of storytelling with your story, Jana's ability to intertwine wisdom and imagination in her book serves as a great example of her talent and ability to speak truth and this also gives hope for those navigating difficult journeys of healing from toxic abuse i want to encourage our listeners to visit jana's website www.janawilson.com uh, that's www.janawilson.com to learn more about her work and discover how wise little one can be a source of solace and inspiration for everybody and is that the correct website yeah, that's perfect. It leads also to our emotional healing retreats and yeah. Anything else you want to add and share? Yeah. So the emotional healing retreat um, is we have a, my husband and I are co-authoring a book, The Emotional Healing System. It's a practical guidebook. So it's going to take all the tools we teach at our retreats and put it in a book. And that'll be coming out next year. We just wrapped our last retreat of this year in Florida and the schedule for 2024 will be out soon so if somebody would love to you know go on a healing journey with us retreats are a great way to do that i think they really catapult people on the path yeah. that sounds great i would love to look into that so and that's on your website as well right yeah that's emotional healing retreats it says work with jana on the jana wilson and it'll lead you over to emotional healing retreats I'll provide a link to that as well. And thank you, Jana, so much again for sharing your story and your insights with us today. Thank you for listening to the Inner Source Healing Podcast. It is important to give yourself the self-compassion that you deserve. And remember that your feelings matter. If you want more information or if you want to contact me, please visit my website at www.innersourcetherapy.com.